Miss the show, no worries. We've got you covered on point and on the podcast. Does a punishment fit the crime? A couple from BC who jumped the vaccine queue and they got fined, but a lot of people believe they should face a far worse penalty, including those who live in the community that they snuck into. We'll talk to one of those people. Folks don't care much about pipelines until that pipeline poses a direct threat to you. Careful what you wish for. The Biden administration getting aggressive, going green, and the threat of canceling a pipeline that would put Ontario into a tailspin. And have the short sellers been shortchanged? What sent Wall Street into a gong show roller coaster ride? We'll talk about that. Getting through to you. That's the point. Do you understand? There is a point. That point where enough is enough. Here's Alex Pearson on Global News Radio. Listening. This is a bump in the road. Not insignificant. Not insignificant. But um, we have to look at the long game. And we do have plans at the scale up significantly in the following months. It's more than a bump in the road, I'd say. This is going to be a long, long game because when it comes to vaccines, the numbers we're being fed just do not add up. Alex Pearson with you on this Thursday, January 28th. This month went very fast, really fast. You know, here we are about to put January in the rearview mirror. And I think with it now, the uh, hope a lot of us had coming into 2021, and that is that we are heading for better times, namely uh, freedom. Because I think a lot of people came into the new year expecting the vaccines that the Trudeau government insists will be delivered by September. And every day that deadline kind of moves further and further away because these numbers that they're telling us every day don't add up. We've only vaccinated 650,000 Canadians. And if we're going to meet that September deadline, that means we literally have to vaccinate millions of people every month. And this week, we're not even getting a Pfizer delivery at all. So it's time to change the talking points. And it's time, I think, for some real honesty from those in charge, because none of what we're being told passes the smell test. Not at any level of government. I mean, every day we are now waking up to a new setback with vaccines, new excuses, but never a clear explanation. And that might be done intentionally because... Creating confusion is one way that politicians can deflect and distract from what's clearly becoming a bona fide gong show. You know, every day we get numbers. We get first dose numbers, then we get second dose numbers. We get delivery numbers. Then the delivery numbers change. Then they go up and then they go back. You know, what we never get is clarity on what the game plan is here. Do we have one? I mean, why does it seem like the vaccine goalposts are always constantly moving? Today, we learned the provinces are being, you know, told, prepare for the worst, the worst case scenario. Well, what does that mean? What, what is the worst case scenario? What are we preparing for? Could we be looking at no vaccine deliveries at all? Alberta and uh, Saskatchewan say they uh, have nothing left to deliver right now. And now Ontario doesn't know when or what they're going to get with the next delivery with Premier Ford now begging Health Canada, please, you know, approve more vaccines. Pfizer has let us down uh, tremendously. It's un- again unacceptable. You know, we, we they have an obligation to meet the contract, and uh, again they've, they've let the the people of Ontario down, let the people of Canada down. But we need a loud voice to make sure that we get our fair share of, of vaccines. Yeah, 
Um, you know, we are supposed to, in this province, get another 33 vaccines, 33,000 vaccines in uh, the next couple of weeks. And now that number's been cut by at least 13%. And uh, no question, that number's going to get changed again. And then we learned this morning that the Ford government counted dosing wrong, that the uh, data team, which counts who's getting the shot, they counted every person who got their first shot as two. So we don't have 90,000 people vaccinated in Ontario. We only have 55,000. And mistakes happen, okay, but, you know, the inconsistencies and the, the negative news on vaccine deliveries is now looking like things are being made up on the fly, which is making it impossible for provinces to meet deadlines, which is likely why we're seeing provinces play with the timing of that second dose. And that's not supposed to be happening. That is not how these drugs are prescribed. And so here we are slipping further and further behind other countries. And the Trudeau government just kind of says, you know, trust us, we've got this, we've got a great portfolio. Well, look, Unless the prime minister has a rabbit in his hat or he knows that Health Canada is approving other vaccines, we're not getting over the finish line because we're not even at the race. And I was watching the press conference today and um, General Danny Fortin came out and updated the vaccine situation. He's actually one of the straight shooters around. You know, he tends to deliver kind of straight answers, but he didn't look at all confident today. He actually looked rather uncomfortable um, and he couldn't guarantee, you know, are we actually on schedule? And no one from the Trudeau government has to go out and explain anything. There's not one minister out there today, not, nothing. And the prime minister is not explaining. I am and I cautiously might, you know, maybe... optimistic. I am cautiously optimistic. And I'm going with the data that I'm provided by Pfizer. Um, Pfizer is uh, is cer certainly intent on fulfilling the contractual arrangement uh, obligation, uh, and they've assured us that we will receive four million uh, doses. So that's what I'm going with at this time. Mm. All right. So Pfizer's got intent. There's intent. They have the intent to deliver. Well, that's nice. They just can't guarantee that they'll deliver these four, four million doses. Which may be why they're now saying, oh, no, no, you're going to get 3.5 million doses by end of March. But you can get 4 million doses if you can just squeeze that sixth dose out of each bottle. Not the five doses we signed for these amazing contracts. And we know that, you know, the road to hell is paved with good intentions, right? And I'm sure Pfizer's got good intentions. But it sure does seem like they're changing things on the fly when it comes to the rules of these contracts. It looks to me, I think to a lot of other people, like Canada is just an easy country to push to the side as other countries aggressively go after these vaccines. I mean, maybe we'll find out tomorrow because the EU made very clear today that they don't care what contracts we have signed. They're now telling their pharma giants that any vaccine made in Europe with European money must be delivered to Europeans first. Look, they, they bought it. They make it. We didn't help. So our deliveries could be slowed or, or blocked. And today was just a big old number game. It's a huge number game. Five doses, six doses, whatever. What we don't have is clarity. And the other thing is we don't have the needles. So it, the only way you can get six doses out of these vaccine vials is with a very special type of, of needle. 
And guess what? There's none available. They're all back-ordered, and, and we don't have an order in. So even if we could get a sixth dose out of these bottles, we can't order the, the needles to deliver it. Because, again, we always get caught flat-footed. So I think the only guarantee right now is that there's a whole lot of small print in these vaccine contracts, and there's a whole lot of politics at play while we sit in our houses and stare at the wall seven days a week. So what we deserve and what our sanity actually needs is some honesty. If there's a screw-up, just tell us. Like, are we getting vaccines this year, or could there actually be delays into 2022, as The Economist warns? Personally, I would just just tell us. Just be honest. That way, you know, we can get away from some of the confusion, get rid of some of the frustration, which is only going to you know lead to further angst and a further erosion of trust. You know, I, I'd rather have our expectations measured so we can prepare for longer restrictions and school closures or so businesses can start making decisions, you know, maybe so we can prepare to understand how long we're going to be living with this thing. So Justin Trudeau should forget about planning an election, put that great reset and climate obsession on the back burner. You know, with this UK variant now spreading in Ontario, it is time he and the others cut the political games and start focusing on getting the one thing that the whole world is fighting for, and they are getting, and we are not. You know, you can have all the money in the world, but what you can't do with that is uh, buy character. Certainly you can't buy brains. And certainly by now you've heard about this BC couple uh, who jumped the queue. They got a private jet, and then off they flew from BC to this very tiny town in the Yukon, also, they could get a vaccine, and of course, they got caught. I don't know how they even thought they could get away with this. When you go and look up information on Beaver Creek, it's got less than 100 people living there. So everyone literally knows everyone. And so in come these jet setters, you know, trying not to get caught. And uh, Rod Baker and his wife, Ekaterina, didn't get caught the first time. They managed to get a shot in their arm, but they're not going to get two. And now they're facing health charges that don't, I think, go far enough to most people as a punishment, especially when you hear that Mr. Baker, you know, he's now had to leave his job, which is so very sad. Uh, but his severance is 28 million bucks. Um, you know, this just wasn't stupid to me. It was just so ignorant and dangerous because they broke isolation rules, exposing a, a small vulnerable town to possible COVID exposure. So a lot of people are saying, you know, that doesn't go far enough. Let's set an example here. Janet Vendermeer is White River First Nations COVID-19 community leader. She joins us now. Good to have you. Thank you for having me. All right. So I'm, I'm not, I'm not, uh, am I exaggerating when I see, say everybody knows everybody where you live? I think, you know, with your introduction there, that is one thing I have to correct. It's a very transient community. And what I mean about this, you've got to remember, it borders the state of Alaska, which means we have a customs building right outside of Beaver Creek, actually just adjacent to the airport. Um, because the customs is there, the customs officers change on a regular basis. So it's oh. not unheard of to go into uh, the mobile vaccine and not recognize everybody. So that is why either they knew that or they lucked out that way or whatever. Um, I, I, I'm leaning toward that they might have known um, that it is a very transient community that no, not the 100 people do not necessarily know every, each other. 
Well, it must have taken some amount of um, planning because I'm looking at it thinking, well, if they wanted to get a vaccine, go to Florida where they probably had a better chance. There's a lot more people and, you know, uh, it wouldn't have been, I think, as precarious as what they did. Nonetheless, they have gone to, uh, you know, your your town and certainly has put the, the town in, in the news. And so what what is um, what are people thinking now and feeling now? I think we're just tired of the the spectacle that is behind it, that, Mm -hmm. you know, it puts our community at a a serious risk. You know, we felt immediate panic after we found out. And, you know, we were starting to prepare for a two-week lockdown of an entire community. Um, Fortunately, you know, we were able to talk to Dr. Hanley, our chief medical officer up here, and sort of assess the situation a little bit. But, I mean, the first thing you do is you do panic. And why not? We had every right to, uh, you know, to panic. Yeah, and I think, you know, given the the situation where it was just kind of so, you know, it was just so presumptuous of them to just go there, there are a lot of people saying, you know, this should not just be a health charge. There should be a bigger charge. Is there a feeling that there must be more of a consequence with this? Oh, definitely. I mean, as a nation and representing a nation, we want a just punishment. So what was started by one of our members of White River First Nation is called change.org slash justice for Beaver Creek. And it's an online petition. Um, and that happened about three days ago. It started, I think we're close to 4,000 names. Again, it was by a member of White River First Nation. But I got a text from Minister Stryker today. He's the Minister of Community Affairs here in mm-hmm. Yukon Territory. Um, and he verified that the couple were served under SEMA, which is the Civil Emergency Measure Act here in the territory, and are required to make a court appearance that a court appearance is may 4th hmm. so i'm hoping wow. may 4th that people don't forget that date that, <laughs> you know we want the media yeah. up here we want people virtually i'll set up i'll set up you know uh big screens for you guys so you guys well, can, uh, uh, be there I can, I can almost guarantee you, unless there's a lockdown in place, this will be uh, the, the one um, court appearance that every media attends, um, because we really haven't heard from this couple. And, and sure, I mean, it's not, I'm sure they've had a terrible few days. They're all over the news. They're making news around the world for what they've done. Um, but again, ha- have they apologized at all? Have they sent any kind of motion that they regret what they did? And would that be enough? No. Well, yeah, certainly not to the nation. No, we have heard nothing. Um, plus, you know, are we waiting for it? Not really either. Um, you know, we, there is a process. There is punishment through the Civil Emergency Measures Act. And it's not, it goes beyond the $500, which is pocket change for these people. It's not even pocket change. It's just change, mm-hmm. you know, in the mats of the damn couch. Um, yeah. But the real, reality is there is uh, an option to have a charge um, and six months in jail. What, when this initially happened, um, I mean, did they stay around for a while or did they just kind of come in, get the shot and leave? I mean, did, did people call them out when, when they saw them? So what happened, is, uh, as far as I understand, is that somebody within that mobile unit um, to Yukon government, the, the vaccine crew, um, red flagged something, made a couple of calls because this couple... Uh, the bakers said they work at a local motel. Um, so that was questioned, and apparently a call went to a motel, and, of course, they didn't work there. Um, so they were given the vaccine um, somewhere through that, you know, 15-minute you know, period, 
and then they walked back two miles in the probably minus 27 degree weather um, back to their chartered plane. So, no, they didn't stick around. Um, like I said, as a First Nation, as white River First Nation, we weren't aware of it until the following day. Um, right. And we are the First Nation government in that area. So that's a whole set of other issues with the Yukon government. Now, if they did call and tried to make amends, would it be possible, or is or is this to the, you know something that has just kind of stuck such a bad taste in everybody's mouth that they actually just want a penalty and send a message? I mean, right now it's a penalty. I mean, right now it's just very clear we don't. You know, I, I always say the spectacle. I'm I'm tired of the spectacle. I'm more in the practical. We need to right. figure out how are the communication can work better. I'm more prepared today uh, mm-hmm. working with the government and the interagency group to prepare for vaccine two. I'm sure. so over vaccine one. I'm on to right. vaccine two and making sure the safety measures are in place. Um, and this doesn't happen again on vaccine two. Yeah, I mean, I, and I've heard of people doing this. I've heard a couple of cases in the Toronto area where people are going in and pretending that they're a caregiver so that they can jump the queue. These are people with money and obviously the means. Um, and, and hey, if you can live with yourself and you can do that kind of thing, I guess that's your thing. I, I could not do it. I think most people would never want to do that uh, because you, you know, the whole reason that they're trying to get vaccinations up to areas like your own are because they're so vulnerable and open to such risk. Um, but it is something that people will do. We just can't uh, go on the honor code with this this situation. But doing it in Toronto is a whole lot different than going up to such a small population. Because if you can characterize what COVID has been like for you guys, I mean, have you had a lot of cases? Has it uh, had a, a detrimental impact on you? No, fortunately, um, all of, of the Yukon Territory, I think we had 70 t- cases total, yeah. um, but no deaths. Our community had no cases, no deaths. Like I said, we're a very small community. We've been very lucky, but that is not without work. I've right. been volunteering 10 months on the Scobert Interagency Group, and it's not without other scenarios where people were not isolating. We have dealt with that. Uh, through the 10, the 10 months for people crossing to Amer- uh, Alaska and then coming back. And that would mm-hmm. be more under the Quarantine Act on a federal level. But so it's not new to us, that, but that was local people. So we had our challenges with local people. I think what's different about this one is they're rich, they're wealthy, they chartered a plane, they're all this kind of stuff. Um, but the challenges have continued through, through the whole um, quarantine, the whole COVID t- year. So... Um, you know, I was already tired. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. We did not need yeah. oh, this yeah. in our community. It's not the way we want to be recognized as a First Nation and not the way we want to be recognized as a community of Beaver Creek. And certainly they um, will pay for this, uh, certainly in probably a lot of shame and embarrassment uh, for, for many years to come. And it certainly has been a wake-up call, I think, uh, to others. So when you do get that second shot, and, and you now have protocols in place that this won't happen again? We do. Uh, We're going to have literally people from the First Nation outside the building recognizing people as they go in. We'll have people from the customs outside the building recognizing people as they go in. Yukon government has put some other identification requirements on. Um, Yeah, it's going to be pretty tight um, and controlled. um, And it's just unfortunate. You know, it's just unfortunate. It's outrageous. It's disgusting. And, you know, I think exactly what you said that, you know, what kind of people would do this? Um, well, none of yeah. going to be, uh, you know, yeah. 
Well, nonetheless, Beaver Creek has uh, certainly um, been a wake-up call, I think, for a lot of people. But uh, we'll wish you the very best in the future. Certainly stay safe and stay warm because I know it's cold here, so it's got to be very cold where you are. Yes, very much. Thank you. Line 5, that pipeline, provides all the jet fuel for Pearson Airport and most of the propane that Ontario's homes use to heat their home in the winter. The Pipe Fitters Union says that 6,500 trades jobs will be lost if the line is shut. Another 20,000 spin-off jobs could be lost as well. Is the Prime Minister finally going to stand up for Canadian energy workers, or will more families receive pink slips this spring? Well, that is the voice of opposition leader Aaron O'Toole asking about something that is now under threat by the new Biden administration. And if it happens, oh boy. Buckle up. And I think it's pretty clear in his uh, less than a week, Joe Biden has made it crystal clear that he's going to aggressively be going green as fast as possible. And so we know he has canceled Keystone, but there are also other pipelines in his sights. And people only care about pipelines when it affects you directly. Well, Enbridge Line affects all of us. And if it is canceled, it's going to wreak such havoc on us, we won't know what hit us. So this is a pipeline that's been around for decades. It's a pipeline that carries about 540,000 barrels of Canadian oil and petroleum every day from Superior, Wisconsin, to uh, refineries in Sarnia. And the government of Michigan has been aggressively trying to shut this down. And the cancellation will not just vaporize thousands of jobs in southwestern Ontario instantly. It will cut off supplies of jet fuel to Pearson Airport. It'll cause major fuel shortages to Ontario and Quebec. I mean, cancelling Keystone was met with a shrug. Cancelling Line 5... I think, should send a chill down everyone's spine in this province, literally because we're not going to get heat. Ross McKittrick is a Canadian economist specializing in environmental economics and policy analysis as always, and is also with the University of Guelph. Good to have you, Ross. Thanks, Alex. This um, issue is not getting a whole lot of attention, probably because people don't care about pipelines. But this particular pipeline um, is crucial to, to the province of Ontario. Yeah, it is. And uh, it's actually quite important to the state of Michigan, too. So it's a bit of a surprise that the governor is being so aggressive in in wanting to shut it down, because it's not just the Sarnia refineries that depend on it, but a lot of uh, industrial operations on the Michigan side rely on it. Um, So for that reason, I think um, I would still say it's it's likely not going to be shut down the way Governor Whitmer wants. But it's a good illustration, too, of just the extreme attitudes that are now at very high levels in governments on both sides of the border against any form of production and use of fossil fuels. And, um, you know, people talk about it and they, uh, they think about it in the abstract. But you're absolutely right. If this one actually happened, uh, people would be pretty shocked at how quickly... Gasoline prices go through the roof. Uh, Airplanes just won't be able to fly out of Pearson. Um, We would have to very quickly arrange alternate transportation of fuels, which would mainly be coming through rail and truck. And it would be far more expensive and, frankly, a lot more dangerous for the environment. Yeah, I mean, the the governor um, has been arguing that this is a uh, pipeline that is a direct threat to, to the water um, of where it was built. I mean, this thing was built decades ago, and she's trying to argue that it's now dangerous should there be a potential spill. But Enbridge has, you know, basically 
um, tied itself into a knot, making sure that everything's safe. And they have not had any problems with it, and yet they've got this deadline of May um, to go away. And unlike Keystone, which got very, very political, Line 5, I think we could argue, is a direct threat to our actual energy security because not only is it gas and stuff, but propane would not get shipped to, to um, Quebec. Um, and certainly, as you point out, all of Ontario would be affected, a lot of Ontario would be affected because it's our direct energy supply. And so is there an argument or could the government be making an argument based on our, our um, you know, the fact that it's a threat to our actual security? Well, it certainly would be a threat to uh, our security and, and um, a threat for all the regions that depend on propane for heating. Um, mm-hmm. Another aspect to this, though, is that Enbridge is uh, is beginning work on an underground tunnel that will replace the pipeline. And it's uh, they've said the tunnel will be finished and operational uh, within three years. The pipeline's been there for, I think, 65 years, and um, it's, uh, it's never been a, a source of problems as far as leaks or spills. So... Um, I, again, I would hope that the compromise here is just for the governor to say, okay, you've got three years to replace it, and it'll be an underground tunnel that removes any risks of of spills in the Mackinac waterway, which is what she's concerned about. Right. And so do you get the sense that this is more a political drive by the governor, or do you actually think she has an intention to shut this line down on the, the premise that, okay, we're going to get a new pipeline built? But but my understanding is that there can't be any disruptions with this line because the chaos it would create um, is, is so detrimental. I Yeah, I don't understand that because um, to to put a May deadline on this doesn't accomplish anything as far as speeding up the tunnel building process. Um, and the company's already committed to it. They've, they've already uh, begun work on it. Um, the, if she really means that this May deadline, it, um, and she intends to do it, I would say it, it's just an example of extremist green thinking um, without regard to the consequences. And like I say, it would be... Um, very harmful on the Michigan side of the border as well. Um, so uh, m- my expectation is that uh, the company will be able to keep running it. Their, their argument is that they have a federal permit and that the state doesn't actually have the legal authority to do this. So um, a, a court may step in and, and side with the company on that. Although with the new Biden administration, I mean, they've moved very hard on the yeah. green direction. So they could also withdraw the permit. And if that happened, then I think, um, yeah, Canada would um, would have to realize that uh, the U.S. has taken an extremely antagonistic attitude towards us and is willing to inflict a great deal of economic harm to pursue its green agenda. Yeah, I mean, this kind of move under under Trump would have um, sent people into hysterics. But because we've got this new administration, I think Canadians think, well, he's a nicer guy, it's quieter, and so it's better for us. But it is not, because I think, um, I don't know if it's fair for me to say, but I mean, given he's only been in power for a week, he has gone very aggressively on green initiatives, obviously to pander to a certain part of his party. But he has gone pretty aggressively on green issues, I think, faster than most people thought he would. Yeah, uh, he has signed a blizzard of executive orders, far more than any other previous president uh, in his first week. And they have, as you say, they've been very aggressive on green initiatives. And um, 
They have been uh, very disadvantageous for Canada. I think they're also very disadvantageous for the U.S. I mean, one of the things that made Trump popular in the industrial heartland was his promise to restore and rebuild the energy industry there and, and promote uh, energy independence, which, which they achieved. And during the election campaign, Biden was really cagey on issues like whether he would ban fracking and, and uh, try to stop oil exploration on federal lands. And now that he's in office, he's moving on those issues. And so I suspect there's going to be some buyer remorse south of the border. Um, but also here in Canada, I think once people get over the sense of relief that there's a change of administration, they need to look at this from a policy point of view and realize um, we actually have um, a much more difficult situation to deal with now in Washington than we did uh, under the previous one. Careful what you wish for. Um, I appreciate your time, Ross. Thank you. Thanks, Alex. My pleasure. You got to ask yourself, what are we seeing here? What's going on on Wall Street? Is this the uh, great equalization or is this just a bunch of pesky market punks uh, wreaking havoc for personal gain? Either which way, it's been a wild ride over the last couple of weeks as this uh, army of investors, they've been shortchanging Wall Street's short sellers. Like they're basically just trying to beat them at their own game. And the Wall Street bets crowd, that's what they're called, this group that uh, organized on Reddit, have been zeroing in on stocks that Wall Street had kind of um, you know, written off. They zeroed in on this retail chain called uh, retail chain called GameStop that in the early days of COVID was just barely hanging on at four dollars a share. Then, of course, by by yesterday, it was up to four hundred and eighty dollars. And then, you know, the markets have been wonky today. The uh, war came to an abrupt stop with buying restrictions put on certain stocks online, I guess, with the snap hope of uh, snapping this very wild rally. Ian Lee is a Carleton Sprott School of Business professor. He joins us, and I know you've been chatting about this all day. End of the day, Ian, what do you make of all this? Where's it going? Um, it's a bubble, um, and we've had bubbles throughout, you know, the uh, last 500 years. The tulip, the famous tulip bubble uh, in Holland, uh, I don't know, 300 years ago. Much more recent in time, the dot-com bubble of 20 years ago. And this is just another bubble. Now, it, it's when I say that, they're using very modern technology. They're using social media to hype the stock. Whenever you have a bubble, you have a an asset. It could be tulips. It could be bonds. It could be a house. You can have a housing bubble where um, a mania sets in, a frenzy sets in, uh, and people bid up the price of the asset much higher than its intrinsic normal value. And that's what they've done here. They've taken these retail, small retail investors using online trading platforms where they pay no commissions. So there's no cost of doing the trade other than you have mm-hmm. to pay for the trade itself. Are are targeting um, small cap stocks, for, for, forgive me for the jargon, but small cap just means that the share price is very cheap and there's not a huge amount of shares. Notice that these investors, these retail investors, are not going after Google or or Facebook or some gigantic corporation that has hundreds of billions of dollars of shares because they can't move the market. You can move the market if you get enough people target a small, and I don't mean millions. You can do it with several thousand people. You target a small uh, company, small meaning their shares are not expensive, and there aren't a huge number of shares. BlackBerry is a very good example. The movie chain, AMC, this GameStop, 
You know, they're, these are small, relative, and when I say small, I'm not talking to their physical size. I'm talking about the price of the share and how many shares are there. And what they've done is they've ginned them up. They've, uh, they've uh, talked them up <laughs> on these social media sites. And the problem is it's going to come to an end because two reasons. Number one, the underlying value of the company isn't worth what they've driven them up to. GameStock sells used video games in shopping centers. Shopping centers are closed right now. (laughs) And who on earth buys video games? You stream your video So the point is... The second reason it's going to come down is that the the big the regulators are stepping in, the the brokerages where you through which you buy your shares are stepping in and they're putting freezes on the shares because they've decided they've become too overvalued, and people are going to get hurt, and probably I will predict that it's probably going to be small people, little people, uh, small investors, the big guys yeah. have already got out of the market, out of these. Sure, markets. I mean if. I mean, the good, when you when the price goes down, that's when the short sellers make the money. But the problem is when the stock goes up, the short sellers have to buy into this, you know, the bigger market. Yes. But then when everyone dives out of it, if you didn't get out of it, you, you, you could lose a whole lot of money. Exactly. Um, and, and so do you look at this as a new Occupy? Because clearly now people have realized you can cause real havoc on the market just by sitting at home and doing this. So this could become a thing. Oh where, you know, activists who, yeah. uh, you yeah. know, hate the 1% can just sit here and wreak havoc, or maybe Russians could, whoever wants to do it, could just right. manipulate the market and just wreak havoc. And, uh, you know, is that what we're looking at? Which is why, and you are absolutely right, this is a risk. You've identified very nicely a risk. I actually deal with, even though I'm not a finance prof, I teach strategy in one of the, and in publicly traded companies. So the students have to go and look up publicly traded companies that have their shares on the exchange. And that means you run right into the SEC, which I like to call the policeman of the capital markets, because that's what the SEC mm-hmm. is. Just like in Toronto, where you are, the OSC is the policeman. And they actually put white-collar people in jail uh, for breaking the, the, the investment laws. So where I'm going with this, I predict with great confidence that the SEC and the OSC are going to step in and come up with new rules. By the way, the Wall Street Journal was reporting today that they're already studying how they can come up with rules. For example, that you have to put more down payment, almost like with houses. You know, Instead of yeah. putting 5% down, now you've got to put 20% down, or it could be 30%. So they can increase the down payment required to reduce the speculation and make it less attractive. They can also do things, because it's all computerized trading now, so they can say, they can actually program it. The SEC can issue an order saying, you know, if the share price is worth less than X dollars and it moves more than 5% in a day, you must, the broker just must stop trading. You know, there's many, many things that the the SEC is very powerful. And once they move, and they will move, I'm not saying they're going to move tomorrow morning, but they're not going to take five or ten years to move on this, and they're no, going to move, and they're going to. Yeah, well, the, the, yeah, and the move they've already made have, has already outraged um, a Hollywood yeah. crowd, of course. The the usual um, who are saying, "Look, this is a uh, Wall Street, though the one percent protecting the one percent." But in the bigger picture, I mean, you know, I don't think any of these celebrities would be uh, too happy if a stock that they all of a sudden own started being part of this game and then they lost uh, the worth and the value in the value of the stock. That's the risk. The big guys are already closing out their short positions. In fact, that was written up today, well well written up in the Wall Street Journal. Uh, quite a few of them have exited their short positions because they've realized that they're becoming vulnerable to these attacks by these small retail uh, groups in on Reddit where they 
talk to each other. So they, they're, no. they've already exited, from what I can tell, from what's been reported. The big guys are out. I'm talking the hedge funds when I say the big guys. So what's happened now is that these small groups of people on Reddit have juiced the stock. I'm using slang English. They've, they've revved up the stock. They've hyped the stock. And lots of other small people are coming in who are not part of that Reddit crowd. And so yeah. what's going to end up happening is one group of small investors are going to exploit and shaft another group of small investors who are naive. And they saw the stock going up and they said, oh, my God, I've got to jump in. I've got to jump in. I can't lose out on this. And now those share prices, I yeah. guarantee it, Alex, are going to come down. BlackBerry issued a statement today saying there is no justification for the share price going up because we're not doing anything differently than before. So exactly. No, it's going to come back down. Yeah, well, stay tuned. Sure is making things interesting in a time when we don't want uh, things to be interesting. We just want things to be safe and normal. Calm. All right, Ian, uh, thank you very much. Have a great night. Send you that. Thanks. Thanks very much. Ian Lee joining us here. You can join us, of course, live Monday through Friday, starting 630 sharp here on Point. I'm Alex Pearson. This is Global News Radio.